Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going to start with a new subject, and it could turn into a volume 5, it might be part of volume 4, that's undecided, but the next series of things we're going to be talking about actually is centered around the concept of epistemology and spiritual experiences and such. So epistemology, again, is how we know things and what we can know as humans, given some of our limitations, and what justification does it take for a belief to be held, for example. So today we're talking about a section or chapter that's titled Faith, Reason, and Spiritual Experience, and it has to deal with all those. So I'll just start reading and then we can introduce it as we go a little bit. You start out by saying, Mormons generally don't present logical or empirical arguments for proof of God's existence. For example, you know, we've talked about some of these before. There's like the cosmological argument for God's existence and the ontological, there's ethical arguments. So we've talked about all these before, so we're not going to go into them now. But the problem with a lot of those too is that they presuppose creation ex nihilo. But besides that, they kind of, you know, they're using some sort of logical form to try to prove God's existence. And a, most of them, because of the creation ex nihilo problem, aren't available to Mormonism since we don't believe in creation ex nihilo, but that's just not how Mormonism is generally done. And you do mention, you know, there's like a teleological argument, which means like a, an argument from design where you look at the world and you're like, well, you know, clearly a creator must be somehow involved here because of the certain circumstances that make life possible or so remote that it would take some sort of being interfering to make it happen, but even that falls short. So, you say, Mormons rarely give arguments to prove that God exists, and instead, they usually contend that the only way to faith in God is a simple invitation of, come and see for yourself. And so any missionary will, you know, this will ring true. When we go out and we teach people or we do missionary work, one of the biggest strengths of Mormonism, I think, is that rather than just try to convince people, we just give them a message, and, you know, we do give them logical proofs in a way, we, we share scriptures with them, we do tell them a story, but in, at the end of it we say, and you can find out for yourself. I'm, you don't have to trust me for it, you go ahead and go and pray to God, and then when you do, you can get an answer. And a lot of people do that, and then remarkably a lot of people do have some sort of experience, or at least some sort of feeling, that it's true, and then they, you know, base everything on that. And today we're going to kind of talk about if that's actually a viable way to come to know or to, to believe in God, I guess. And also, is that just, in general, a viable way to come to know anything? So, as far as like an intro goes, before we dive in here, what else would you like to introduce on that? Not much. The lectures on faith, I mean, since its foundation with its earliest statement of beliefs in the lectures on faith published in 1835, the lectures on faith took the position that there are no proofs for God's existence, and, and either we believe in the word of others who teach us about God and we receive a tradition from them, or we have our own experiences, and they take the position that generally there are no other viable bases for belief. So this is a very Mormon approach to believing in God and reasons to believe in God. 
All right, great. And then, well, I'll just read this too before we get into the first section. You say, no argument can prove spiritual experiences because the direct encounter with the divine will always be more basic and grounded and frankly more compelling than any other evidence or argument. In saying this, you say up front, you say, I'm not stating that, you know, I will not give reasons and arguments, only that they are not more basic or trustworthy than the human heart in relationship with God. So again, evidence and reasons are going to help convince someone, but at the end of the day, they're not the most important thing. It's these experiences that we're talking this about. Is, this is more of an argument against a person who is arguing that the kind of religious experiences that people have can't be a reliable basis for knowledge or belief. And so it's kind of responding to those who, who want to say, I've got a defeater for your belief, and my defeater is my argument. But it's not that we're giving arguments to prove religious experiences. The religious experiences are their own proof. And so we don't need to do that. But what we need to do is to respond, and, and we'll do this in later papers as well, but it's like to people who are saying, well, I know a lot of people who had strong religious experiences, and then they ended up not believing. And we'll explain the movement from belief to not belief, and why it usually is based on some kind of a self-deceptive move that sets aside a religious experience as a basis for assessment, and then concludes that the spiritual experience isn't in and of itself reliable. We'll get to that later, but that's what we're doing is looking at these kinds of arguments, but we're setting also the foundation for the response. So the first section you title Epistemology of Religious Experience. And then you talk about, you know, we've talked about this person a lot, Alvin Plantinga's response to people we call empiricists or people that need physical evidence. So I'll just read this first paragraph here to introduce what they say. In the writings that we're going to be referring to from Plantinga, his project is based on the question of what epistemic duties we may have, and he responds to arguments made by empiricists who claim that our beliefs must be based on adequate empirical evidence. So if we have beliefs but no evidence for them, according to the empiricists, then we violate what is known as the epistemic duties concerning what we should believe. And so by evidence, the empiricist generally means physical evidence of the kind that can be observed and measured and would pass, you know, under the hard sciences, that kind of thing. You point out with that that it seems that the demand for such physical evidence to ground our beliefs seems to be a little bit mistaken because, let's just take this idea, you say, if beliefs require observable evidence, then the belief in this supposed epistemic duty would also require observable evidence for its justification. And what physical evidence is there for the existence of these epistemic duties at all? There aren't any. Yeah, the whole point is that no moral duties can be shown by any kind of physical evidence. The empiricist has no grounding for moral duties at all. They may have grounding for saying this would be better in terms of its consequences based upon the values I just happened to subjectively postulate without any basis, but there really is not a basis for ethical duties that one can derive from physical evidence. Moreover, the range of human experience that is subject to this kind of evidence, this kind of testing and control, you know, you have to have controls and verifiability and you have to be able to measure. Only a very small part of our experience would actually be subject to any kind of a test of that nature. So if you assert, I love my wife, I guess they could say, well, we'll watch you for a long time and see if that's true. And so while you're feigning to love your wife and planning to kill her, you fool them because they all think that you love your wife because your outward conduct says you do. And they can't look on your heart while you're planning to set up the trap. So the empiricist is going to be wrong about assertions like, I love my wife, because they take love to be merely an objective stance. In any event, there is so little of human experience actually subject to the kind of scientific analysis that most people say is the basis of human knowledge in our culture, 
that I think that they really don't understand the nature of human experience and how limited our scientific analysis and investigation can really be. I'm not bad-mouthing science. I'm saying it has its appropriate realm and that it's a very powerful way for coming to knowledge and assessment and measuring and so forth. But most of what's really valuable in human life, like what is the purpose of my life, is not subject to some kind of empirical investigation. What should I do in relation to the people that are around me is not subject to empirical investigation. So these are the kind of things that are the basis, the most valuable things in our experience, actually. And science just can't really address them. Neither can science address the issue, in my view, is there a God? Right. So it's kind of like just using a wrong tool. For example, like a, a chainsaw is really useful if you're trying to cut down trees or cut things. But if you're trying to write poetry, chainsaw, not that handy anymore. <laughs> All right, so I'll have you kind of explain this, but according to planning, he's trying to defend religious experience, that religious belief satisfies these epistemic duties. And he argues that beliefs in general are warranted without any physical evidence at all if they meet two criteria, which is A, they're grounded, and B, they are defended against known objections. And then you say, with this understanding, he maintains that religious beliefs are what he calls properly basic in that they are grounded in and based on religious experiences. So say they're actually based on an experience, and such properly basic experiences are not justified by reference to other reasons or experiences to support them. Instead, they are such that the inquiry for the reason for belief must end with the reference to the experience itself. So can you explain what he is getting yeah, at? I'll a, yeah, I'll make a distinction here. So for instance, if I assert... I love my wife, and somebody inquires, well, why do you believe that? You just look at them in disbelief and just say, well, I just do. I just love her. There's nothing further that can be explained. I've reached rock bottom in my explanation. So that's what is basic. If you say, I believe my wife is a good person, and they say, why do you believe that? Then you can give instances of goodness, and you can ground that in something more basic, like, well, she's good because I see her treating the people that she's around with kindness. So what is properly basic is something that really can't be investigated any further. In terms of analysis, it's rock bottom. It's what grounds everything else in terms of basic proposition. So if I'm looking outside and, and I see that there's snow in the yard, I think to myself, oh, there's snow in the yard. And, then, and if somebody says, well, why do you believe that there's snow in the yard? You'd say, well, I've got these senses and I look at this thing and I believe, you know, I, I just happen to believe what I'm seeing until something else says that I'm crazy in believing what I see. And so that's basically planning his defense, but you say the most effective criticism against planning his position is that he basically is ignoring the question of justification for beliefs. So Richard Swinburne points out it amounts to whether the religious beliefs are probable relative to the total evidence, for example, in the snow again. If you look outside and you see snow, but then nobody else does, then if you have the belief that the others who don't see the snow have basically reliable functioning senses and not everybody else is crazy, then he would say, then you don't have a justified belief at all because the total evidence is not in favor of that. And he compares that obviously to a religious experience. If you say, you know, I feel God right now, and everyone's like, well, I'm not feeling anything, so who's the odd one out here, you know? So again, I'm looking at snow and, and somebody points out, well, you know, it's 95 degrees outside and snow can't exist when it's 95 degrees and i say well what's the basis for your believing that it's 95 degrees as opposed to my belief that that's snow outside and they say well the rest of us don't see snow and it's 95 degrees which is very good evidence that we're right and so we don't believe you have properly functioning senses we think that 
somehow you're schizophrenic and you're having delusions or your senses are just delivering data to you that's not accurate. So what they've done is is provided to me an undercutter for my belief that my senses are properly functioning. So if we have a sense of God and there were a basis for believing that our senses of sensing God were not properly functioning, then we would not have a basic belief because it's been undercut. And what Plan is actually saying is that if I have a basic belief, I'm justified unless and until the undercutters are successful. And what Plantica looks at are like arguments from the existence of evil and things like that. But more appropriately, we should be looking, what is it that undercuts the reliability of our religious sensibilities in terms of having religious experiences? And it's the kind of things that you talk about. It's like, I prayed as to whether the Book of Mormon is true, and I had this beautiful, wonderful, heartwarming experience. I just felt so enlightened and, and so good and so much love. And, you know, to me, that's a very basic experience. And somebody else comes in and said, you know, I did the very same thing. And what I felt was that this was one of the stupidest things I've ever read. And I didn't have any such experience. I was very sincere, asked the best I could. I think I'm at least as spiritually sensitive as you are. But that was not my experience. Does that undercut our belief? And we'll talk about that in later chapters. But I think the answer is no, that does not. What would undercut our belief is somebody saying, but your experience can easily be explained by brain science, and here's why. And what that shows is that my religious sensibility is better described by some other physiological naturalistic explanation and not the fact that it's true and that God is somehow disclosing something to me. And so what I've done is traded basic intuition. The empiricist is saying, I have evidence that is more probative to me and in the total scheme of things, given the total evidence, I think is a better explanation. That seems to be to me a defeater, and I think that's the kind of thing that Richard Swimburn is is pointing at. He's saying, look, if your religious sensibilities are undercut by the total evidence, then there has been a successful defeater of religious belief. And so you've got to look at both of the elements that you're talking about, not merely whether your experience is properly grounded in properly functioning senses but also whether or not the defeaters, and what's the defeater going to look like? It's going to look like an assessment of the total evidence. So I think that's what Richard Swimber, and I think that's a fairly decent critique of what Plantinga is saying, but the response to that would simply be, well, I have prior reason to believe that what I'm experiencing is true, and I can respond to your defeaters. I don't think that's what the empirical evidence shows at all. In fact, what it's showing is my brain responding to the spirit, not that the spirit is a product of the brain. And so what we do is we get into a circularity kind of of explanation here. The empiricist, given his prior epistemic beliefs, believes that evidence of what the brain is doing shows that there's a naturalistic explanation. And the spiritual believer is saying, no, what's happening is a spiritual experience, and this is what it looks like when you look at the brain. Both of the responses, in my view, would kind of beg the question. But that's how our, our society and our culture actually works when we discuss these kind of things. We get into these circular arguments that, that depend on our prior assumptions that, you know, basically determine what our outcome is going to be. Yeah, in fact, maybe you are referencing this, but there was actually a fairly recent study done by Jeffrey S. Anderson and some other people that was actually done at the U of U, and they basically did exactly what you said. They try to get highly religious people, specifically Mormons, because that's the community they're in, so they got a bunch of young, healthy, returned missionaries, and then they brought them in and they showed them various videos and things like that. And then they were supposed to like press a button when they were feeling the spirit or something. And so they did, and then they measured the brain. And so, and then they had discussion about, too, this exactly what you're saying. Like, 
there's two conclusions you can draw. One person can say, like, well, look, they're the areas that are activated are the same ones that are activated for different reward things. Like, you can get that same experience with drugs or, like, you know, just listening to beautiful music or something like that. And so they're like, oh, it could be a manufactured experience. And then the other side of that is like, well, no, it's that is, yes, you can see that that's a natural response of the brain and you can induce that in other ways, but that's also just the part of the brain that happens to be activated so that you can make sense of the actual spirit coming to you. you the, these studies don't show anything of what's actually causing it. They just show the effect on the body of what's happening. Both of these positions essentially beg the question against each other. There's a very interesting article by Nicholas Wolterstorff that, you know, what would we expect if human beings really were created with a, what he calls the sensus divinitatus, which is what Calvin posited and that's what we'll be talking about. We have this kind of spiritual sense. And what we find is that humans are hardwired for spiritual experiences and for spirituality and belief. It turns out that those who don't have these kinds of experiences or senses are actually the odd ones out. And that the fact that they don't have these experiences would suggest that their spiritual sense is not properly functioning. Because the vast majority of human beings have this kind of a sense based upon studies. And so Nicholas Wolterstorff argues it's precisely what we would expect if we were set up with a religious sensibility to detect the truth. And so the evidence is consistent with that. But again, I suppose you could interpret that both ways and say, no, I mean, look, human beings are just the kind of beings that are hardwired for belief. It has nothing to do with whether those beliefs are true or not. It may be socially beneficial and therefore evolved or something. So both of the, these approaches seem to me to just beg the question in a major way. Also, in conjunction with the article, I was I was just reading to see what the opposing opinions were to this kind of views of Mormon experiences or spiritual experiences, and they came across this thing, and like, well, guess what? The church, in like their, I don't know, specifically like the Mormon messages or all the videos they make, they actually employed Bonneville Communications. They actually have a product, which is called Heart Cell, which is like a researched method, if you will, to make people experience these type of feelings and these profound spiritual experience feelings. And so like, well, look at that. You can just manufacture these feelings. And the church even uses like this trademark method from this advertising agency. And not only do they sell it to them, that's the same one that they use on like those Save the Kids in Africa commercials or the you know, save the, the poor animals commercials that's supposed to make you feel these feelings. Like, well, if we can just manufacture it, therefore it's not real. But like you said, the other side of that is obviously that it may just be presenting a message in a way that does affect a person. Well, no, I mean, we are such that when certain times of emotive um, situations that call for a compassionate response are present, that we respond that way and it calls forth the spirit because it calls forth compassion. It begs the question both ways, but the fact is, there's nothing wrong with that. It happens to be the case that we're the type of beings that have spiritual experiences, and there are certain kinds of circumstances that are more conducive to spiritual experiences than others. Let's just leave it there then. Let's go over this one pretty quickly, but next, which is more moving into what we're going to be talking about, is another person named William Alston is tackling the same question, but kind of from a different angle. You say, he's responding to the argument that it is irrational to base beliefs on religious experience. His interest is epistemic rather than prudential. So he wants to know how we know truth as opposed to what we are warranted in believing. So he's interested in the degree to which religious experience is successful toward the goal of whether or not the belief is in fact likely to be true on the basis of its justification. So can you briefly explain what Alston's position is? What Alston is saying is he's comparing the beliefs that we form through sense experience 
And he's saying that religious experiences are on par with our sense experience that we trust. So I'll go back, I'm looking at the snow. How do I justify that I'm looking at snow and that there's in fact snow out there? Well, I go out and taste it. So I use another sense. Well, it tastes like snow. I feel it. It's cold. It feels like snow. And I jump in it. It's soft like snow. And so I use all the senses that I have. And the problem is every, every way I go about justifying my sense experience relies on another sense. And so I have to then ask, what's the reliability of that sense? And so it, it turns out that there's no non-circular way of verifying sense experience. And he's saying it's the same with religious experience. It may be circular, but we are just as justified in trusting our religious sense and experience as we are in justified our own sense experience. And since it is, in fact, a practice that we have to trust our sense experience, we are rationally justified in accepting religious experiences just reliable as our senses. And we are justified in accepting our senses. And so they're not irrational. And it's not irrational to accept spiritual experiences. He does concede that there are some differences between sensory experiences and religious experiences or practices. And I'll just go over those real briefly. He says, first, with perceptual practices, there are standard ways of checking the accuracy of any particular perceptual belief. Not so with religious experiences. Second, by engaging in perceptual practices, we can discover regularities, make predictions, and even test hypotheses against predictions. Third, the capacity for perceptual practices is universally shared among all, generally. And fourth, all normal adults use roughly the same perceptual practices in public discourse about their sense experiences. So they all kind of, you know, they can talk about it the same since humans generally experience the senses in somewhat similar ways. And so he says, you know, spiritual experiences aren't like that. Yeah, but what he points out is that when we look at justifying these differences, that we assert these differences exist, we find out that we then have to refer back to our sense experience to justify these experiences, to ground these basic conclusions about how we justify sense experiences, and so we're back to the circularity. We have to re rely on the reliability of our senses in order to verify the reliability of our senses, and therefore, we're back to square one. I think he's right about that. I think Alston's argument is, in fact, successful. It's not irrational to base beliefs on religious experience to the extent it's not irrational to base beliefs on sense experience. And that's where you bring up, you say, that's one of the biggest criticisms is, is that even if he is correct about spiritual experiences being no less reliable than the senses, he doesn't give any reason to actually trust our sense experience. And you say further, the fact that we can experience very similar experiences through our senses while we can't determine whether our spiritual experiences are similar to someone else's spiritual experience, that alone seems to be a good reason to trust sense experience more than spiritual experience, at least to the extent that we know that we are not just hallucinating or creating a merely mind-dependent experience. And I would add, I don't know if you've ever watched this, but it's on Netflix. It doesn't matter, it's not produced by Netflix, but it's on Netflix now. It's, a, it's called Brain Games, and it just goes over the different ways that your brain perceives and then how you can be basically tricked it like goes over like different illusions or different perceptions that people have and it's like well your senses can give you wrong information because they just are set to work a certain way yeah what it leads to is skepticism because our senses are very often not a very good guide to what we're experiencing it's precisely through those kind of things i usually show people a puzzle that's put together where there's a ball going around a circle and as you watch it it disappears and the reason for that is that your brain determines it's no longer relevant for your sense experience, so it just kind of blocks it out even though it's still there. And so it's a good way to show people what you're experiencing isn't what it's actually there. The interesting thing is that after a while, the dot going around starts to change color, but it in fact doesn't change color, and then it just disappears. And so these are interesting kinds of experiments to show that our sense experiences are not all that reliable. 
So if I'm relying on something that's not all that reliable to prove the reliability of spiritual experiences, or that they're at least on par, I have very good reason to doubt that my spiritual experiences are, are always accurate. However, it is still the case that we rely upon our sense experiences unless we have some defeat or a good reason to believe they're not true, and it's the same with spiritual experiences. All right, and next we're going to move into the main part, and that's titled The Distinctive Mormon Epistemic Practices. I guess, first off, what's Reformed Epistemology? You go over that in the paper, and you refer to it, so I wanted to mention that. What Plantinga and Alston and Walterstorff are presenting is what's known as, they all arise out of Reformed Epistemology. They're coming out of the Reformed tradition, Calvinism and Lutheranism as a basis for their epistemic um, beliefs in Christianity. Okay. So you say there's many similarities with Reformed epistemology and Mormonism that arise from the Mormon scriptures that base spiritual knowledge analogously with our senses and perceptual practices. You know, you hear, like, we'll go over it in a minute, like burning of the bosom or things like that, a swelling in the breast. Anyway, the difference between the two is that Mormon scripture points to a sixth spiritual sense that has been given to each person to experience and know the truth. So maybe what I just said doesn't make sense, but anyway... Let's use the analogy. I mean, in essence, what is being said is that God has given us within our own hearts a liahona that responds when we're faithful. And so we have this built-in spiritual sense that leads us to truth. And that's what's being said. It's an actual sense. It's not a physical sense, but it's a spiritual sense. And we still have it, and we still can detect it, but we don't detect it through the five senses that we have in the body. It's a sixth sense. It's like the spiritual sense that John Calvin argued that we have, for instance. And as we'll see, Alma argues that we have this sixth sense as well. All right, and that's what we are going to talk about next. So you say the best exemplification of this in the Mormon scriptures is in Alma 32, where he talks about comparing faith that leads to knowledge to a seed that's been planted in someone's heart. So, I don't know, rather than read all that, you want to just kind of take us through that? Yeah, I mean, we begin first with um, the notion in DNC 9 and 8 that God will cause our hearts or our bosoms to burn within us if what we're hearing is true and right. Alma basically fleshes that kind of a notion out. What he's saying is, look, we begin with the question, are we going to be open that a seed will be planted in our heart? And if we're open to the notion of a seed planted in our heart, we allow the seed to be planted. And then to know whether the seed is good, we wait to see whether it will grow. And we know that it's growing because we feel it in the swellings of our heart and in the enlightenment of our minds. And then we know it's good because the seed is actually growing in us. It was planted, and it's producing what we were told it would produce. The fruit is being born. However, if we don't nurture it with a life of faith, if we don't nurture it by living a life that bears the fruit of that seed, then it will die. And so it requires faith. Faith is what underlies spiritual experience. And let me just make this observation. Faith is, in fact, a stance from which to see. So if I see my experience not as, uh, for instance, going back to the brain studies, I see the brain as reflecting my spiritual experiences in a brain scan rather than my brain causing me to have spiritual experiences because it's a naturalistic cause, then I've taken a stance from which to see. And I can see things from that stance that I couldn't see from the other stance and vice versa. What this is telling me is that my entire being will be engulfed with this experience and knowledge. And that my my knowledge will grow if I nurture it with a life of faith. So yeah, with that kind of idea in mind, you know, does that fit into this justified way to come to know things? But then you point out, for example, you give this metaphor of, of tasting of something. 
The question is, for instance, I use the analogy of gelato, Italian gelato. Now, you've been to Italy with me, and so you know this is the case. The kind of gelato that you can get in Utah really isn't quite the gelato you get in Italy. And if a person's never even tasted gelato and you try to explain to them what you're tasting, you, you just kind of end up with – you can't even convey the information. There's no way to do it. And so you have this experiential knowledge based upon taste. And you can't really convey it. The only way that this knowledge can really be had is experiencing it directly. And so if you've tasted gelato, you've tasted gelato in Utah, and I say, you know what? It just doesn't compare to gelato in Italy. And you say, well, what's the difference? And I say, oh, geez. You know, there's only one way to show you the difference. We've got to go to Italy, and I'll get you some gelato. And so that's what we're talking about. The kind of knowledge, and this is really imperative to understand, I think. When we're talking about spiritual experiences, we're talking about a different kind of knowledge. We're talking about knowledge that has two dimensions to it that are both essential to the knowledge. One is a dimension of interpersonal knowledge. So I know you as my son. I have a relationship with you. And the way that I know you, I can't convey to another person. I could describe everything about you, but they still don't know you the way that I do. I can't convey this because it's both interpersonal, but it's also an interpersonal knowing that arises only in relationships. It can't be conveyed. It can't be tested. It's not a scientific knowledge. But more than that, there's experiential knowledge. So remember when I taught you how to ride a bike, we both went out to a hill and I ran up and down the hill about 1,500 times so that Corey could learn how to ride a bike. But the fact is, riding a bike is just getting a knack for it through experience. I mean, you just have to do it. And there's no other way to learn how to ride a bike. So this experiential knowledge of how to do something, like ride a bike, is not something that can be conveyed by a manual or a description. You just have to get out there. And you've got to develop the body muscular feedback of balance that allows you to do it. And so there's this experiential knowledge. And both of these types of knowledge are implicit and contained in spiritual experiences. And therefore, it can't really be conveyed from one to another. So I know something. I've had a spiritual experience that's been revealed to me through spiritual experiences X, Y, or Z. And you asked me to explain to you X, Y, and Z. You know, how do I know X, Y, and Z? I can explain all about my experience to you, and you still don't know what I know. And that's because this kind of information can't be conveyed from one heart to another. It cannot be conveyed because the knowledge is subjective. That is, it's person-specific. It's the kind of knowledge that only one person can have. Once you know how to ride a bike, I assume that you have the same kind of sense of balanced experience that I have. Or once we've both eaten jello, I assume you're tasting the same kind of thing I am. But the truth is, I just don't know. Because these kinds of experiences are subjective in the sense that they are person-specific experiences. And I think this is a very good thing about spiritual experiences, because I think if you were a god and you were fashioning a way for people to know what is most important in human life, and that reflects a special kind of interpersonal knowledge the way that spiritual experience does, then you would fashion something exactly of this nature. And it doesn't depend on your, and we'll get into this matter, but it's so important that it doesn't depend on your ability to be intelligent. It doesn't depend on your ability to analyze and figure things out or have scientific knowledge. And in fact, I think in some ways, those who have the most profound spiritual experiences are often the most simple people. They too can have spiritual experiences that are every bit as legitimate, every bit as much knowledge. And so I don't want to say that, you know, I'm sorry, your IQ is only 54, your IQ is only 98, but my IQ is 142, and I'm so much more brilliant than you were. You can't figure it out, but I can. That's not how spiritual knowledge works. In fact, I would suggest that people who want to analyze it and cogitate about it are going to be further away from it and will have a harder time figuring it out. 
it's not given to them simply because they're smart. And I think this is a very important facet of spiritual experiences. They're given to everybody on the basis of the condition of their heart, not on how bright their brain is. And yeah, that, make, that would make sense if that's how God wanted to do it, to do it that way, to be fair. So we have in Deuteronomy this statement, and it's really a story about how a person, you know, in order to find the truth, they go far across the mountains, and they, they sail across the sea, and they walk across the desert trying to find the truth, and they miss the entire truth because the truth was planted in their heart. So the knowledge is planted in our heart, but our hearts are as if covered by a foreskin. Now, let me make this real. What we're doing is saying that we have this very sensitive part of us that gets covered over so that we can't feel. And this is very personal, especially for men. I mean, think about the intimate nature of this analogy. And what we're saying is the heart is like this. It gets covered over so that we're beyond feeling. And we have to be willing to open our hearts, to soften our hearts, so that our hearts can be penetrated. In fact, what Deuteronomy says is the knowledge of the Torah, that which was delivered to Moses, is planted already in our hearts. And if we go looking across the sea, we'll miss it because it's like with Dorothy. You know, when Dorothy says, well, how am I going to get home? Galinda, the good witch, says, look, you've always had it with you. You've got the ability to go home right now. <laughs> and so it's the same way with spiritual knowledge. It's planted in us. It's already within our hearts. It's already so intimate and familiar to us that it's part of us. What is equally important is that Paul takes up this scripture in Deuteronomy as the basis for knowledge of justification in one's standing as a Christian. In this metaphor, it's no longer the Torah that's planted in our hearts. It is now Christ who is planted in our hearts and the Word. So he says the Word itself is planted in our hearts, and it's so close to us that we don't need to go looking for it. And this is the reality of being a Christian. For a Christian to have this kind of knowledge, it is for Christ to take up abode in his or her heart, and for the Word to dwell in our hearts, and we can feel it because we're willing to feel. Now, later on, we're going to be discussing why people get beyond feeling and why they close down and shut down and build walls so they can't feel anything, and why we hide from ourselves our own spiritual knowledge that is always with us. But for now, what's important to recognize is that part of this epistemology is we have a sixth sense. And so we need an explanation for why, well, if I have this sense, why isn't everybody sensing it? I mean, it's like if, every, you know, if everybody had eyes and weren't blind, we'd all see. But the fact is, is you have to have eyes to see. And so, you know, when Christ says you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear, he's not talking about physical eyes and ears. He's talking about a type of a sense that is even beyond that. So the explanation for why everybody doesn't just have spiritual experiences, we don't open our hearts to find the truth that is already planted in our hearts. We're not open to it. And so, in spiritual experiences, what the task is, is to soften ourselves to be open to such experiences in faith. That's why faith is important, because without faith, we can't open to this experience to trust it. And so, faith has the dual notion. Remember, the words for, for faith in Greek and Latin and Hebrew have a double meaning, trust and belief. It's trusting belief, and it's the kind of trusting belief that I have when I trust and know another person. So the bottom line is the, the kind of knowledge we're talking about is this interpersonal knowledge of trust. When we open to another person, it's like, I'm never going to open to another person again to let them hurt me in my heart like this would hurt me. We have to be open to God and to other people in order to feel this. And so this is all about love. It's all about being open to be in relationship with people. So again, what I have is what I call a relational epistemology. It is based upon interpersonal relationships, interpersonal knowledge, and the kind of knowledge that we already have planted in our hearts as human beings because we have this inherent sense. 
we'll get into this later in later podcasts, but we have an eternal part of us. And it's this eternal part that understands the truth. It responds to the truth. And so it's because we have this eternal part that we sense the eternal truth. Our heads will never know the truth. Our heads know only beginning and an end. They're finite. But our hearts are connected to eternity, and this is where we know the truth. Now, I'm not saying we leave the head out. One of the most important things I can say about this is, in this perceptual practice, it includes both not merely what we call emotions, because what we're feeling are not true emotions. It's not like I'm feeling a, a general human emotion. I'm feeling a, a superhuman emotion. I'm, I'm feeling this kind of divine joy and the sense of enlightenment and knowledge. But I'm sensing it in my heart and my head and my understanding and my ability to grasp the truth is expanded according to Alma. So it's my entire being, head, heart, and mind that is included in this experience. So when people want to reduce this, oh, I had feelings, I've had emotions, but, you know, I I got emotional when I heard Beethoven's Fifth, too. And Beethoven's Fifth is a particularly, you know, religious experience. It's just an experience. When they reduce it to that, I know for sure they don't have a clue what I'm talking about. I mean, this will rehash a little bit of what you just said, but let me, yeah, I'll just read the six things that you say are the facets of the Mormon epistemic practice or how we experience spiritual knowledge or how it's described in the scriptures as well as in just colloquial member experiences. So you say, number one, just as you said, experience cannot be reduced to mere emotion or feeling. Since you already talked about this, I'll just go over it briefly. You just mentioned how it does say in the Doctrine and Covenants how you have to study it out in your mind, and you can't just suppose that, you know, he says, you can't just suppose it would just be given to you. You have to study it out in your mind and then ask, and if it's right, I'll cause that your bosom burns within you. So it's this connection between your mind and your heart working together. It's not just emotional, and it's not just your head, but it's these two things coming to know what what we're trying to do is say, this is coming to know truth or something that is true. And then you say, Doctrine and Covenants 8, 2 clarifies, it says, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and dwell in your heart. So this burning bosom, this in your heart, or the very center of your soul, is effective and involves feelings, but it also involves a sense of pure knowledge and enlightenment. Most often the experience of sensing the truthfulness of the message comes in the midst of such a search. The answers often come in conjunction with sincere study, searching, and thoughtful pondering. I guess that's just good to point out because a lot of people are like, well, yeah, I mean, if, if you want to have yourself experience something, you have to like start expecting that you're going to feel it. And then they use that as an argument against it. saying like, well, yeah, if you start thinking you're going to feel something and then you feel it, oh, wow, how look at that. You found what you thought you were already going to be feeling. But you're saying, you know, it, it works this way and it's the other way around where you feel these way because you've prepared yourself and being open to it. Anyway, number two, the spiritual experience cannot be produced at will, meaning by you. You know, you can't just be like, I'm going to feel the spirit now. Oh, there it is. But it's experienced as coming as a grace in the midst of an honest search for truth. Or I would say, you know, when you hear truth or you feel a spiritual experience. I remember a distinct feeling one day I was in, I think it was like ninth grade in seminary class. And I don't remember even what we were talking about. It was something about and somewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants, but like I remember like the spirit was really strong and then the instructor pointed out, it's like, you know, what you're feeling right now is that's like basically light and truth being poured into you. That's the spirit. And I always remember that and like, wow, I'm that's I'm really feeling that. Like this isn't just made up. And then three, it involves having this like you talked about, the sense of having always known. It's it's a deeply familiar sense. So it's something that's already in us that just resonates with our inner being. And four, you say it involves more than just cognitive or discursive knowledge, which you kind of, I think that's, is that Latin or Spanish there? So, Pate and Kenosha, that's Latin. 
you can say the same thing in Spanish. It's it's uh, saber and conocer. Yeah. So there's the well, then we'll do that. So saber is to know about something. It's to know you know some factual knowledge. But then conocer, or however you say it in Latin, is to interpersonally know someone. To actually you know like you would know God, being part of someone's being in life. And and so that's where we talk about again this being accepted into a relationship type feeling. And I don't know, like a lot of people describe spiritual experiences as kind of like this feeling of coming home or feeling like this is where you belong, that kind of thing. And I, I think that fits with what you're describing there. And then just to be fast, uh, say that that feeling of burning in your heart includes the feeling of indescribable joy, peace, and sweetness. So you usually feel those along with that burning in the bosom. Also, the experience itself tends to be a reorienting experience. So after the experience, rather than just be like, that was nice, you see the world in a new light. Everything is, you know, maybe temporary too if you don't keep it up, at least in my experience. But it tends to, you know, shed a new light on just your experience in general. Yeah, and usually like in the experience of conversion as a result of these kinds of experiences, everything we experience becomes new. It's different. We call it being born again. And so what happens is the experience becomes the basis for reinterpreting all experience. And so it's prior to experience. The experience then becomes the basis for understanding further experience and everything in one's life. So it reorients not only one's entire life and stance in life, it reorients all of our experience. Okay, and then let me do this before we go into this next part. I don't know if listeners or you have ever seen the movie Contact, but... I saw it fairly recently and thought it's a certain scene from it fits really well into the discussion. So uh, the movie is, I think that it's based on a book actually by Carl Sagan, who is a, a staunch atheist, but the scene in the movie kind of resonates with how this can happen. So in the movie, just to make it brief, there's a woman and they they get contact with what seems to be like some sort of otherworldly or alien entity, and then they build this machine, and then she is somehow, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. Basically, she goes through this machine, and then for her, she, when she, they just, it's like this weird ball thing, and she drops through this energy field, and then to everyone else that sees it, it looks like it was a failure because it just dropped immediately, and she fell right to the ground, and nothing happened. And they're like, well, that was a big failure. It cost millions of dollars. There was like an accident during the construction, and some people died. But to her, when she dropped through it, she had this experience where she met basically th these beings and one of them was in a form of her father and she just had this very profound experience and so she's an atheist and she's a scientist and so this is you know a going against everything she understands but anyway they they have this kind of like a trial putting her on some sort of trial anyway i'll just read it so as a panel member and they address her her name's ellie arroway and they say dr arroway you come to us with no evidence no record, no artifacts, only a story that, to put it mildly, strains credibility. Over half a trillion dollars were spent. Dozens of lives were lost. Are you really going to sit there and tell us we should just take this all on faith? Please answer the question, Doctor. Is it possible that it didn't happen? Yes. As a scientist, I must concede that. I must volunteer that. Wait a minute, let me get this straight. You admit that you have absolutely no physical evidence to back up your story. Yes. 
You admit that you very well may have hallucinated this whole thing. Yes. You admit that if you were in our position, you would respond with exactly the same degree of incredulity and skepticism. Yes. Then why don't you simply withdraw your testimony and concede that this journey to the center of the galaxy, in fact, never took place? Because I can't. I had an experience. I can't prove it. I can't even explain it. But everything that I know as a human being, everything that I am tells me that it was real. I was given something wonderful, something that changed me forever. A vision of the universe that tells us undeniably how tiny and insignificant and how rare and precious we all are. A vision that tells us that we belong to something that is greater than ourselves, that we are not, that none of us are alone. I wish I could share that. I wish that everyone, if even for one moment, could feel that awe and humility and hope. But... <laughs> that continues to be my wish. Yeah, it's a very good example that you found, and, and it speaks, I think, very eloquently to the kind of thing that we're discussing here. And it's also the kind of subjectivity and the lack of amenability to scientific measurability and testing that we have at issue in religious experience. And so it expresses very well the very kind of thing we're experiencing. And, you know, you're, you're insightful to bring that into the discussion. All right. And then before we go into the last section, you kind of have another explanation in, that you go off of from DNC 93. So you want to bring that in briefly? Yeah. And we'll, we'll go into this later when we talk about knowledge is being that is knowledge is inherent in the very being of our existence and that is that what's given in 93 it talks about intelligence and the intelligence of god and it asserts that intelligence is eternal and then it asserts that we were in the beginning with god and that we participated in this intelligence one way of reading this is to say that intelligence this kind of sensibility is inherent in the eternal beings that we are it's internal part of us, and the kind of thing that we naturally are is this ability to sense and perceive truth. And so it's the very sense that we're talking about, and this eternal part of us still resides with us. It's still who we really are. And so this is the basis for our knowledge. The basis for our spiritual knowledge is this eternal part of ourselves, and in Mormon revelation and thought, it's grounded in our eternal reality and existence. And so we'll develop this more theologically and philosophically later. But I, I just want to give kind of a foretaste, if you will, of the basic theological underpinnings of the kind of experience we're talking about. All right, and then diving into this last section here, we'll just briefly go over it, but it's titled Faith, Evidence, and Reason. And you start out by saying the nature of faith is essential background to discussing whether religious experience is a reliable form of knowledge. And here you say you seek to demonstrate that knowledge based on spiritual experiences ultimately comes down to faith in the sense of trusting one's experience. And you say you're going to argue that there is no way to distinguish between what's called the phenomenal nature of experience directly caused by God and 
knowledge based on memory or sensory experience. And you say faith differs from such publicly accessible methods and is therefore subjective, like we've talked about, and accessible only to each existing individual in the following ways. So you have uh, six ways here. So since it's subjective, this is how it is experienced. So number one, faith is passionate. Well, this is very important, and, and the reason for this is faith deals with the things that we care most about. Faith deals with whether or not our lives are meaningful. It deals with the kind of meaning that our lives would have. It deals with whether or not the things that we care about most, the loving relationships that we have, will endure, and whether or not there really is such a thing as love. If you're going to explain spiritual experiences based upon these kinds of naturalistic tricks of our brain, then there is no such a thing as love, because everything that we call love is just a naturalistic trick of our brain as well. There is no such thing as a human love. All it is is the outworking of the microphysical particles in our brains. We ultimately reduce all explanation to that. And I don't believe that electrons and quarks love. I don't think they have the capacity for it, and anybody who believes that doesn't understand the nature of the thing we're talking about. And so if, you're, if we're going to start reducing spiritual experiences to this kind of thing, we're also going to reduce what we care most about to this kind of thing. But if we believe that there are such things as right and wrong and good and evil, that we actually have moral obligations, if we believe that there is such a thing as love in the universe, if we believe that there's meaning in life, or even the possibility of meaning in life, then faith of this nature is required. It's required because I'm dealing passionately. I'm not stepping aside like I would as a scientist and objectively scrutinizing and assessing all the possibilities. What I'm doing is existentially involving myself in this passionate endeavor of being a human being. I don't step aside to watch it. I jump in with both feet to experience it. And then I, I liked what you said, too, just the at least on both sides of the coin. You say that this type of passionate love leaves you wary about the possibility of accepting such possibilities because you desire it so much to be true that the problem of self-deception is a possibility. But you also say you fear the self-deception of rejecting it simply because it seems too good to be true. Yeah, I mean, it goes both ways, right? I, I mean, I've heard people saying that they just can't believe it because it's too good to be true, and I'm just looking at them in stun of disbelief, but I understand what they're saying. And I also understand what it is to say, well, I want this so much, am I just tricking myself into believing that it's true? Because, and, and it ought to be like this. I mean, if there is a God of the kind of being that we've been describing, and he really is setting up an eternal realm for us, it's going to be incredible beyond belief. It's going to be better than the best cruise that you've ever taken in your life with the most important people and the most loving people that you've ever known. And who doesn't want that? I mean, but if we want it so much, can we really believe it? On the other hand, if it's everything that really matters in life, how can we disbelieve it? Our lives would have no meaning without it. All right, then two, you say faith is an interpretive stance that is unique and subjective. And we've talked about that, but you say and Kant had certain terms for this idea. He says, what I experience is a phenomena, which is something that's already passed through all the interpretive filters that I have and the overlay of my reality and my worldview and previous experience, and that's how I experience things. And we can't experience what he calls a noumena, or objective reality, in and of itself. Well, let me put it this way. You'll never have an experience that you don't bring yourself to the experience to experience in the first place. You're always there first, and your entire history you know, the way that you interpret and see things, your worldview, all gets imposed on whatever you're experiencing. Now, let me be clear about this. The experience itself may be free of that kind of interpretive stance, but when we talk about it in human language, it's always embedded in this kind of human stance. It becomes a way of seeing and expressing the world. Faith, however, is, is basic. 
my faith that I have is simply a, a choice that I have to trust my experience. If I have a spiritual experience and I believe my spiritual experience, then I have to decide whether I'm going to trust that spiritual experience or not. And sometimes it's not a full-blown consciousness of choice that I'm making this choice, but I am nevertheless making a choice at a very fundamental level of my being. And so that's the kind of thing we're talking about as faith being an interpretive stance. Now, the fact that I have an interpretive stance doesn't mean that this is somehow a lesser type of an experience. All human experience is from a particular stance. We can't escape our own skin. And so the bottom line is, is that this is the necessity of being a human being. We stand where we do. We have the horizons that we do, and we can't overcome them until the perfect day when we do. <laughs> All right, then three, as you mentioned, faith is a choice. So it just it requires a choice to be open to the possibilities and to be willing to commit even with even before all the evidence is in. I mean, that's almost the definition of faith right there. But it's not like we're committing before all the evidence is in because our faith isn't proportionate to evidence. It's not based on evidence. Faith is a choice to be open to trust and to trust the experience as we have the experience. And the experience isn't really evidence. And let me put it this way. My experiences are not evidence for you of anything because they're subjective in the nature that we talked about. My evidence doesn't prove anything for you. All I can really do is ask you to open up to the possibility that you have the same or similar experience so that you have the same knowledge. Well, and I was thinking, I'll post this too, but you gave a paper about this kind of thing a while ago. And during that presentation, you showed this picture, and the picture is it's a famous one. It's this picture that either looks like an old lady from one angle or from another angle. It looks like a young lady in a hat. So it's either this old lady with a big nose or this beautiful young woman with a hat, yeah. And so you say, you know, if you look at this, you some people see the old lady, some people see that, and then once you look at it, you can actually see both of them, and then you can make a choice as to which one you see. And so, at least for me, I've come to be there with faith being a choice, seeing like, well, I've, I've seen a lot of evidence, and I can see where people are coming from that are atheists or they don't believe. I, I understand how they could see the evidence and choose to make that interpretation. But I see the evidence in favor as well as the evidence against, and I have to make a choice because if I really wanted to, I could choose not to believe. But I'm choosing to have faith and to, you know, give more credence to those spiritual experiences as well as just the way of life. And so for me, it's a real choice. It's not because I'm blind, or at least in my mind, it's not that I'm blind to the facts of some of the problems with it, but it's that I'm saying, you know what, I see those, but at the same time, I'm choosing to embrace the good things I see in it and live as though this were the case. And I've, it serves me personally, and that's my choice. Yeah, and, and there's this very large argument in, in philosophy as to whether our beliefs are open to us to choose to believe or whether they're, in a sense, compelled and foisted upon us. And here's the interesting thing I find. People who feel free in their choices and, feel, and know faith as a choice usually, in my experience, maintain their faith. But people who feel compelled by evidence to believe one way, they feel like they have no choice in the matter. The evidence just compels them to see something. I'm going to make two observations, one of which is going to upset some people. One is that probably is how they experience it. They experience their belief being compelled. They, they'd like to believe, they just can't. And losing their faith is a dear thing that they'd love to be able to believe there's a life after death because it would be so wonderful if that's true, but they just can't believe it. The second observation I'm going to make is how they hide their own accountability for their belief from themselves. The fact that they experience it that way is, is a form of hiding the fact that they have taken a choice on interpretive stance and interpreted 
and usually what I find happening is this. I'm going to find out what my life looks like if I set aside all my spiritual experiences. Well, that's a form of self-deception. And so when they engage in a form of self-deception by hiding from themselves the deliverance of their spiritual experiences, they engage in a stance that they can't possibly have. That's the stance of not having had the experiences they've actually had. And it's a massive self-deception. I find it happening all the time. And I'm amazed at, at both the self-deception occurring and the refusal that they have to take accountability for the choices they've taken in their stance on trusting their own experience. You know, I ask them, well, if you had these kind of experiences, yeah, I had them, but I decided I'd see them in a different way. They never say I decided. I came to see them in a different way, as if though there were only one way to see all of that. And so I believe that people with faith have a kind of freedom that people without faith don't. And number four, you say faith is an act of interpersonal trust in relationship with another. And I guess you talked about that a little bit a few minutes ago. But Well, it's what we've discussed, and that is that the type of knowledge we're talking about, the type of knowledge where we're in relationship with another, the type of knowledge, experiential knowledge, because there are some things that can be known only through experience. This kind of knowledge isn't based on intellectual acumen or IQ. It's not based upon one's education. It's the kind of thing that one has that is really sensitive to the kind of openness of heart we have, and whether our hearts are hard or whether they're soft, whether we're loving or whether we reject and shut out people. And so this is a very important aspect of this kind of faith and trust, and that's the interpersonal nature of it. And it's the trust that's inherent. The trust is an interpersonal trust. And a part of it is trusting the knowledge that we have and the experience that we have, but it's also trusting the sense of interpersonal love and acceptance that we feel in the relationship. Okay, and then next you say faith is primarily a matter of heart. You say the heart is this alignment of your emotion and your intellect or reason. So it's bringing those together to knowing subjectively in this. You don't say it here, maybe you do elsewhere, but in that talk that you gave that I referenced before, you say the Hebrew sense of the heart is not necessarily like your, you know, your pumping, beating heart, but the core of who you are, and the core of your being. And so when you know in that area, and like, it's hard to describe, but I think most people listening will kind of know what we mean. Like, you know, you, some people call it your gut or your, you know, just this deep sense that's within you. Yeah, there's this deep sense of knowing and this deep sense, as you say, of being at home and this deep sense of, oh, I've always known this. It's always been a part of me to know this. And so it's so familiar to us. When we're talking about the heart, we're also talking about the fullness of human experience, both emotively and in terms of our cognitive recognition of what we're experiencing. You know, most people, and I'm one of those who, who experienced it this way, I felt really enlightened. I was beginning to see things and understand things in a way I'd never seen it before and couldn't see it before. And so for me, it was very enlightening. And I felt like I was learning new truths because I was now having breakthroughs about the way things are and, and why they're that way. And so I think most people, when they have this kind of experience, also feel the freedom of insight in the mind and the breakthroughs that they have into seeing seeing the way things really are in a way that they never have before. All right, and then lastly, you say faith is a gift. And you point out that human relationships involve A, an act of will to enter into a relationship, B, voluntarily accepting the relationship offered by the other, and C, the gift of the relationship from the other, and then D, the gift of oneself in that relationship. So you can't create faith simply by willing it any more than you can create a relationship by willing another person into it. It takes a giving and a receiving from between two people. Right, and so this is a form of grace. I mean, what we're sensing is that something, a, a wonderful gift has been given to us. And 
the gift that's being given to us is an interpersonal knowledge of God himself. We now enter into a relationship with God. And so there's this feeling of presence and love and acceptance and forgiveness. And, and these are very often all entwined in the relationship at one time or another. And so it has this interpersonal sense that God is giving us a gift and giving us this experience and in giving himself to us so that we can have the experience. Well, all right. Well, that's pretty much the conclusion of this particular paper. And like you said, we'll discuss different aspects of this in future podcasts going over the other chapters. But as far as this one goes, anything else you want to say? Uh, just what I'm thinking is we'll do The Problem of Evil as the fourth volume, and then we'll do a, a volume on epistemology that will include what we're discussing now, which will be the fifth volume. There you go. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.